Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. My pleasure to welcome the Reverend Janet Broderick uh, to the pulpit, and uh, she's our new Associate uh, Rector for Christian Education and Formation. Uh, This is almost like an old homecoming, though, because uh, uh, before uh, she she was ordained out of this congregation, um, uh, served in this congregation, and we're so grateful for you to be back with us. It's it's just, uh, it's fitting and a move of the Spirit, and we're so glad that you're here. And so, um, uh, please, Janet, we've come to hear and see Jesus. Whoa. (laughs) Well, thank you for sharing. (laughs) Wow. My son was baptized here, James. I was married here. I didn't get divorced here. (laughs) Dear Lord, uphold thou me that I may uplift thee. Amen. There's a a psalm, beautiful psalm, Psalm 102, um, the sixth verse, but the whole psalm is beautiful because it's cry for uh, a real God when one feels alone and broken. I recommend it to you, Psalm 102. There's a line in it, though, in verse 6. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. This... Ukrainian trauma, the trauma of what we are witnessing in the world, I feel owl-like, like an owl alone on a roof, staring down at an atrocity for which I feel I can do nothing. Raise your hand if you saw one of the, I'm sure you did, one of the women down in the, or men down in the subway area. Yeah. So they were, we see them down there, and as New Yorkers, we're, we, we unify with them. We know what it's like to be in a subway and to bring your children into a subway station to become safe. And this one woman was being uh, interviewed by, uh, by a reporter, and uh, the reporter commented, she was standing there, be- woman, good haircut, you know. And uh, he said, well, I don't know why you... You don't. You, you seem strong in in the face of all this, and she said, "I, I need to be strong. I have uh, I have children. I don't want to upset them." And my heart breaks for that. You know, she's trying to hold it together, and and we stare at this atrocity and feel our own aloneness. It always trauma brings back trauma. I have a friend, Danielle, she's going through radiation right now. It's kind of complex radiation. And I can feel the aloneness that she feels when she lies down and she has the radiation machine run over her. No, everybody gets out of the room. Everybody leaves her 
so that this can happen to her alone, lying on a hard bed. Even we can feel aloneness when we're right next to someone. You don't have to raise your hand, but you can be right next to someone who's snoring (laughs) and feel awfully alone. Good, I've got friends. You can feel alone in poverty, in race, in sexuality. And that's why it was such a sort of moment of respite when Jackson was nominated to the Supreme Court and we kept hearing 244 years of a court without a black woman and now a woman was being nominated for the court and and one person on the radio said... uh, I'm so happy that I've been smiling all day so hard that my face is hurting. And she's, she's, her face is hurting with the glory of not being alone as she looks at the court. And glory is like that. The glory of God is like that. It's this moment of reprieve in which for one moment we say he's got the whole world in his hands. He really does. For one moment, there's this moment of saying, no, no, we have a black woman on the court, and I'm there, I'm here, and I'm there on both places. I'm part of it. And that's what glory really feels like, doesn't it? I, I remember when I was in therapy, my, my proper analyst had on her wall the proper quote, uh, which Freud had on his wall as well. Um, He had it in Latin. Uh, I am human, and I think nothing human is alien to me. I am a human, and nothing human is alien to me. Wherever you've been in your mind, wherever you've been with your hands, wherever you've been with your body, and wherever it is, none of it is alien to we who are human. Lincoln sitting alone in his office, and you can imagine receiving reports from the war, writes into his diary, I have been driven many times upon my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for the day. It's a great existential aloneness to simply not have it inside to do whatever it is that needs to be done. And so in our scriptures today, Moses has this moment of glory. And don't you love the fact, I mean, this is the best. You know, don't you think it's wonderful that when he comes back from being face to face with the Lord, a dream of his whole life, he comes back down the mountain, he doesn't realize that he's shining. And, and you don't realize that you're shining when you leave church. You don't realize you're shining when you sing hymns. You don't realize the glow from God's light within you that comes out of you. You don't even notice it when it's really happening because it's spontaneous, because it's God's work and it's not yours, because you're not self-conscious and filled with yourself, because you're, you're simply emanating what God has given you. And that's what happens to Moses. He comes down and, and light shines from him. And then Peter, 
with these booths. You know, he's he realized that he's putting everything together there. He's putting Elijah, he's putting the law, and he's putting the prophets, and then he's putting Jesus glowing in the middle. And for him, it's all happened. It's all taken place. Remember that Jesus had said right before he went to this moment, he told them that there would be a consummation of Israel. That there would be a moment when everything was was managed and handled and when love would win out. And so poor Peter thinks it's happened. How much his heart must have been broken when he comes awake and comes down from that experience to a person filled with a demon. How sad it must have been. What What a huge gap It must have felt like there was from the glow of being in God's presence to the reality of his incapacity to make the world a better place. Glory, glory, hallelujah is true. A friend of mine, I was speaking to him last night and telling him about this word and he said, the only way God can be with us is to be mediated through a human face. So Moses is finally letting his wish on the mountain of transfiguration, getting his wish. He can see God without fear. So can we. He's in the face of Jesus. Which means, said my friend, not only is God not a threat, but we're never alone. Rashi, the great uh, Talmudic scholar of the early medieval time, he, he talks about this situation with Moses and the veil and says two things I just, I, I thought were so brilliant. One, he says, don't you see how God teases us through Moses? Because he puts the veil on when they're not ready, and then when they've come a little closer, he takes it off. And isn't that like being fed by God? That, that Moses, says Rashi, is so humble. He doesn't have to give it all right away. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about what's good for the Israelites. And what's better for them is the veil. Because that's all they have, as St. Paul called it, pablum. And then as they come closer, he can remove it. Rashi says that when Moses was finally able to share and was able to take his veil off, they heard Torah. They were able to to take in all that he had to say. For us, we have times of glory, God's glory, and times of desolation, desolate heart, a sense of being an owl on a treetop, looking down. But here today, the scripture is taking us, as it always does, from the sordid to the sacred. That's the movement that we have in worship, from the sordid to the sacred, lifting us up, seeing God's glory. Where, where is God's glory? God's glory is in the word. God's glory is in the sacrament. God's glory is in your faces. Lincoln, when he first came out to make a speech, said, here I am, after he was a president, here I am on the uh, platform, 
And I've come to this platform for you to see me and for me to see you. And I want to say, you have the better, I have the better deal. What a graceful man. So I want to give you an image of how, uh, uh, how there's hope. How there's hope in these times of owlhood. Um, my uh, daughter went to a school called Mustard Seed in Hoboken. Mustard Seed is um, a Christian school, and um, she was little. She was about five. So, um, uh, Miss Allen, where you know the five-year-olds, and so they're desperately intelligent. You know, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, great painter. Uh, who did all the cutouts, um, because with an M, uh, Matisse, he said, I'm finally smart, I'm finally good enough to be five again. <laughs> yeah, isn't that, the creative arts camp understands this. Anyway, so that's why it's a privilege, a, no, it's a privilege and a spiritual growth, growth opportunity to be a part of the creative arts camp, because it's time to be five again. Yeah teaches us a lot. That's an aside, but just to say. Um, so anyway, my daughter was uh, in school, and um, she's five, and the World Trade Center happened, and I know as New Yorkers, we've, we went through it, and you remember the helicopters and the sound and the fear, and that's come back to a lot of us as we look at the Ukraine. That past trauma has come back. I hear it in people's voices and things they say. Well, the children... Uh, after they went through that trauma at in Hoboken, Mustard Seed School looks right at Lower Manhattan. So the children watched the entire thing and then lived through the helicopters and everything. So for about six months after uh, the World Trade Center, the children, everything they did, and, and you can imagine this, they made pictures of towers. The walls, when we would hang the walls of the, the pictures, it'd be one towers, 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 with fire coming out, with fire coming out. And then when they built buildings in the blockyard, they built towers, and then they bashed them down. And I remember sitting in the lunchroom and seeing uh, this little girl, and she was taking macaroni, and she was piling the macaroni one on top of another and hitting it down with her hand. So they were traumatized, and they were... Uh, playing it out with everything that they had in their hands and their hearts. At the end, um, in the springtime, it was the custom for the fire department, to, a fireman, to come and visit the school. And the reason the firemen would visit the school was so kids, if there was a fire, wouldn't run away from scary-looking firemen. So he would get in front of the children, and in Hoboken there were a lot of fires, and uh, he'd get in front of the children, and they could see his outfit, and he pointed out, he even showed them, he'd take his coat off and show his suspenders, which were red, and, um, and he had his hat, and he showed them his oxygen tank so they wouldn't be scared. They were sitting in a semicircle on the floor uh, watching the firemen, and the teacher, Janet, she said, uh, now, if there's a fire, we will be safe because we will assemble together and we will go out the door and we will meet at a place where the, we have determined uh, we're safe and then we will take the stairway down to go outside. And uh, a little girl raised her hand and she said, well, 
What if the, the door is filled with fire? And uh, Janet said, well, um, if that door is filled with fire, do you see we have a safe classroom? There are two doors. There's a second door. So if that happens, we won't go out the door with fire. We'll go out the door that's clear, and we'll go to a safe place and go down the stairway and out into safety. And there was sort of silence for a moment in the room, and the little girl raised her hand again, and Janet called on her, and she said, well, what if that door is filled with fire? And uh, at that moment, our Janet realized that the children weren't asking about fire. And she walked slowly over to her desk, and she took the wooden cross down that was always sitting on her desk, and she placed it right on the floor in front of the children, and she sat down on the floor with them. And she said to them, and I, I remember, and I want to, I want to say it um, as she said it. Um, if there is no way out, and there is a fire in both doors, and if we cannot do anything, then we will not be alone. We will be with Jesus, because He is with us and in us. And forever and ever. This is the meaning of the transfiguration. That the light has come into the world and it will not be put out. Not only is God never a threat, we are never alone. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord, as through reflected, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast, produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org slash give. Thank you for your support.